Yuma. My name is Jude Barlow and I'm a Ngunnawal woman. My family are Wallabaloa people, a family group within the Ngunnawal nation. Ngunnawal people are the traditional custodians of Canberra and the surrounding region. And my ancestors have lived on this country for thousands of years, from the mountains to the life-giving rivers. I want to welcome you now to the land of my ancestors, on which the National Gallery of Australia stands. And I will welcome you in the language of my ancestors, a language once thought dead, but we Ngunnawal people, we know it was only sleeping, and we have awoken it. Yangu Nalamanyin Dunimanyin Nunuwal wari darwa wari, darwa nuna nurmbangya, mara biji mulangari jinyala, gulambanyi, naragana wali yeri, yara binyin, nuna yarwi yangu, yumalundi, nunuwal wari, darwa wari. Today we're all gathering together on Nunuwal country, and this is my ancestor's spiritual homeland, and we are keeping the pathways of our ancestors alive by all of us walking together as one. You may leave your footprints here. Welcome to Nunawal country. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which you are listening to this podcast, and I pay them my profound respects and thank them for their many outstanding contributions to the life of this nation. Janimaba, thank you. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are respectfully advised that this recording may contain voices of and references to deceased people. Where possible, permission has been sought to include their names. Artists Artists is a podcast brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. I'm Jennifer Hickey. And over the course of the series, I'll be chatting with artists about works of art from the national collection that inspire, move or intrigue them. Today we're talking with Dani Mella, an Australian artist of Najon and Mamu heritage who was born in 1971 and lives in Barrow on Gundungurra country. There are 33 works by him in the national collection. Danny works across various media, re-evaluating, in his words, iconic landscape traditions informed by his connection to place through his Aboriginal heritage. Danny, thanks so much for joining me. That's a pleasure, Jennifer, and thank you for that introduction. The first work of art you've chosen is by the Australian Keningu artist John Marwinjal, who was born in 1952. At almost two metres tall, Rainbow Serpents and Tilapine Kangaroo was created in 1991 from natural earth pigments and binder on eucalyptus bark and is braced with wood and natural fibre string. Dani, could you describe the work for our listeners? What does it actually look like? At around two metres, it's an imposing bark or a, a rock painting. And what struck me about this work in particular was both its scale, but also the intricacy and vibrancy of the artwork itself. I found it fascinating to be looking at something which had this almost obsessive detail. And there are various kinds of comparisons you can draw across 
all art traditions where artists are, are so engaged with that minutiae of detail and telling a story through um, each footprint of their paintbrush or pencil or whatever medium they're working with. Um, but this one, towering as it is for a bark painting, has quite an intense vibrancy to the colour, even though they're very earthy. So this is another thing that really attracted me to this piece, is the way the work describes in a really congruent sort of way just that mystery of the story, but also connects it back in a very powerful way as well to country and landscape. We have a sense as viewers that, in fact, we're looking at something that came from the earth as well as from the artist's imagination and from that community's storytelling around the understanding of creation, around their understanding and relationship with country and landscapes. My understanding with these bark paintings is that they come entirely from country. So the materials are derived from the landscape around the artist. I understand as well that John Moenjol introduced PVA or an archival PVA to actually, I think it would have strengthened or, if you like, given some sort of archival longevity to the material and the fragile nature of the ochres that he was painting with. Because bark paintings and these kinds of ceremonial paintings were not meant to be objects or images that lasted. They were ceremonial, they were used for storytelling, perhaps for education, um, but in that sense they were not temporary, but short-lived compared to, you know, some of the things that are used now and kept and stored in museums and, and institutional archives. Can you remember when you first came across John Marangel's work and what your response to it was at first sighting? I recall seeing paintings by him when I was an art student at the Camera School of Art at the ANU, and this was in the early 90s. And a lot of my first encounters with some of these really quite significant and important artworks came about through visits to the National Gallery. It was really quite interesting for me as a young artist to begin to trace relationships that were perhaps not so obvious between work that came from remote communities and was held in the same institution and the same collection as other works that were perhaps more internationally or informed by different kinds of cultural contexts. At that stage, there was a fairly clear delineation it, geographically and culturally between works that were displayed the, at the National Gallery and other galleries too, I should add. So the conversation between works such as this and other pieces is more of a recent kind of thing where I think it's really amazing to begin considering the artist's voices, not just their work, but their voices over time are now in conversation with each other. And how do you think that experience of first seeing this work impacted on your own creative development? It's interesting. I, I found that a lot of work that impacted me deeply didn't necessarily have the kind of impact where it shows itself readily in my work. I found that it seemed to have almost like a, an invisible or intangible impact, which I couldn't quite read or make sense of at the time. So what seemed important about the work at the time kind of got held in a memory. 
And over time, I began to realise that in some elements of my work, it mirrored not particularly in form, but perhaps either in in gesture or intent, that there was a a connection that I could perhaps more personally realise and understand that actually it was seeing this work 20 or 30 years ago. You've written, what is especially hypnotic about Mohanjol's Bach paintings is the rhythm and metre of the imagery, its symphony and song. And you've drawn a comparison between his work and that of Paul Klee and Vasily Kandinsky, so artists who lived on the other side of the world many decades earlier. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, if you could elaborate. When I look at works like this, I'm conscious that there is a particular kind of formal evaluation, which includes movement and rhythm. In this case, the movement of the forms in the work, but also the rhythm of the way medium is applied and the intervals between certain things and the spaces that are actually left. And as part of this ceremony of painting, uh, there would also be accompanied by song and a remembrance of the legend and the oral history. So there's a, a multifaceted kind of approach to creation. What I found very interesting about that period of European modernism where Clay and Kandinsky were active, there was a, like a, a move to give form uh, to the expression of music through painting. And that, in a sense, was a visceral or a bodily kind of response. It was an imaginative and perhaps almost spiritual way of showing that form and how the world might appear with colour, with shape, with abstraction, because it dealt with intangibles. There was a recognition of the immaterial. And so even though it is a sort of a stretch comparison across time and space or time and culture, there are these things that artists work with. And it seems that we have a lot of things in common, even though that we're working in different times. I kind of regard artists in the collection and artists working now and artists who have come before us as colleagues. In a way, you might have answered my next question, which is, you know, this was a painting that was made 32 years ago. How do you interpret the contemporary relevance of this work? Relevance is always a very interesting question and thing to consider. This would have been an extremely exciting time, I think, to begin to see work coming from communities and artists such as John, where it's almost like outlier forms of painting and, and really exciting approaches to relaying cultural narrative and story would have first entered collections or become a more considered part of them. And to begin thinking at the time it was acquired, how it then developed a conversation with other works, and to consider also if curators and audiences actually had a well-developed enough visual language or way of talking about the relationships between works to begin that process of connecting it to the whole of the collection. And it's an ongoing discussion because there are new discoveries and new kinds of things to realise about artworks. They have a, a particular way of living through time and they bring up different things. I see them as having a very important signature At the moment, they are brought into the gallery, but then they have a a life beyond that initial introduction, both to works around them and also to audiences. (laughs) 
Well, that's probably a good point to move on to your second work of art. It's a small oil painting, Boy and the Moon, which was created between 1939 and 1940 by the Australian artist Sidney Nolan, who was born in 1917 and died in 1992. And it's a really deceptively simple image, a stylized ochre yellow head and neck against a dark background. When did you first come across this artwork? I saw this artwork quite early on in my career as well. It was an interesting kind of encounter because, in a way, I'd seen a picture of it in a book first. And so there's a sort of mythology that builds up in one's head about, well, what's this work going to be like and how will it sort of reveal itself to me and how will it impact? And it's, as you say, it's very deceptively simple painting, but at the same time, the materiality of the work, like a lot of Nolan's images and paintings, is very engaging. The way he uses brushes, the way he brings washes and um, puts down his paint and medium and uses oil paint in general is, is very interesting. Sometimes it's quite scrubby and at other times it's quite refined. Uh, but there's this whole variation of marks and shade and tone and wash that exists on a continuum between those two things. And I find it fascinating the way that he has an urgency in his storytelling and narration, which is quite obvious in a lot of works. But in this one, it's, it's more quiet and contemplative. I found that very interesting. Quite often his work is filled with gesture and filled with, uh, you know, the artist's voice of urgently telling a story. And I'm thinking of his Kelly series in particular, and I really enjoy the way it's quietly reflective and the fact that he talks about it as a silhouette of his friend against the moon or against the night sky is a beautiful pathway to almost an intimate moment where he has a realisation of something and quickly puts it down. And artists may have those sort of instinctual flashes and think, right, well, I've got to put this down or explore this or tuck that away for a later exploration. But in a way, it's sort of like a, it's a reverse silhouette because the silhouette in this case is the illumined sort of yellow of the moon. When Sidney Nolan painted this, he was a young man. He was around 22. Australia had just entered the war. And of course, Sidney Nolan went on to become one of the best known Australian artists in the 20th century. What's your take on his life and work? The importance of Nolan's work within the Australian landscape of art history at the time, it was a really important moment for the country in terms of its modernism and the way that artists began to explore that. So I'm thinking of Nolan, but also his very close friend and colleague, Arthur Boyd, and to some extent, Clifton Pugh, perhaps I should mention Drysdale, of course, as well. And, you know, there are other female artists who begin to play an important role here, but Nolan, Boyd and their colleagues, that group, the Angry Penguins, really began to sort of shift things around at that time in Australia in quite a remarkable way. I always look back and think, well, it's really interesting to consider the way that these artists were innovating and what were people or artists thinking about the work of, of First Nations artists and Aboriginal people. And they were landscape painters and artists and establishing their own voice. But what was their awareness of Aboriginal art and those kind of profound relationships with country that 
communities and artists um, from those places had as well. And so I wonder, as artists, kind of how they felt sometimes in that space, exploring and doing the things they did with relative you know, freedom and being able to develop a story around the landscape and understanding in their own way. When we think of, of Nolan's work around the Kelly Gang, it's fascinating as well. He's building a myth that has its layers within, I guess, Western contextual history on the landscape of Australia. Sid Nolan had a particular way, I thought, of entering into some of those intangible elements or stories that were often embedded in landscape and bringing them to life in a way with his own kind of overlay of story and narrative and tackled in in some senses some of those big questions that non-Indigenous artists at the time were perhaps asking about the landscape around them. I think that's a really good moment actually to segue into the next work that you've chosen, which is a small landscape work on paper, Shoalhaven Gorge from 1953, which was created by the Australian artist Margaret Preston, who was born in 1875 and died in 1963. And in terms of what you're talking about, the intersection of Aboriginal languages and Western languages, this is something that Margaret Preston is trying to explore to varying degrees in this work. And in a way, she's trying to combine an Aboriginal approach to the landscape with a Western style. But of course, this is a very controversial approach. It's been read variously as an acknowledgement of First Nations art, but also as a rather thoughtless appropriation of it. What's your reading? I agree with both. And in some ways, an intellectual position around either of those kind of negates the other. But actually, I think they both exist. And so this is part of the complication of reading Preston's work and encountering and understanding it. Margaret Preston, I see her as a remarkable artist in the sense of scope of her ambition, what she was trying to do, the way she went about it. Her work was acknowledged very early on as being of some significance and, and relevance. And this happened, in, I think it was 1923, in London at an exhibition of Australian artists' work. And the exhibition was generally not well-received. Most of the work was seen as somewhat derivative. But actually, Margaret Preston's work and, interestingly, Thea Proctor's work were singled out as being quite original and dynamic and offering something new that wasn't sort of bound up in the tradition. And her approach in terms of actually bringing about this national language or identity as she was so determined through her work, I tend to see it as a heartfelt position, misguided as perhaps looking back, we can now see that it was. In some ways, it was of her time. And so I tend to bring a degree of tolerance into the way I look at what she was doing. From our vantage point now, we understand some of those, if you like, incursions into cultural appropriations were deeply inappropriate. But looking at the visual language and the way she began to try and bring things together was, it was almost like a research exercise on her part. I find her work very interesting as well because she and I have been to some of the same places. I mean, I'm within stone's throw of the Shoalhaven where this painting sort of derives from. And so I felt a connection in that sense, but her attempts, if you like, and that controversy around appropriation really missed something. And that was 
the relationship with people. I felt having, you know, sort of read and researched over years that there was a really enthusiastic engagement, if you like, or involvement and appreciation of the way First Nations artists were dealing with image, with form, with material, with medium. And it was always seemed to be based on an appreciation of the work and the style and their approach rather than an engagement with people. And this comes back to the really important thing of relationship. I was often asked in the time that I was lecturing by students of, well, you know, we're really interested in Aboriginal art and want somehow to explore it. So how do we actually do that? And I said, well, firstly, you need to ask, what's the reasoning behind this? And often it's not what, it's how. So the process of actually bringing that into the own space of your work is very dependent on relationship and talking. And that needs to happen with Aboriginal artists or communities. And in Preston's time, perhaps that wasn't even something that was considered. It was, I think, in some ways, not a blind incursion into it, but a almost like a, a journey into that space where it was blinkered, basically. There just wasn't the kinds of cultural lenses in place where she would have an understanding or artists and audiences had an understanding that, in fact, this is a, a ground or a cultural landscape that needs to be approached with a very different set of parameters around understanding, around discussion and insight into the relationships people had with the land and which Preston, in a way, derived some of her forms from. Given that this work was made in the 1950s and our reading of it now, more than 60 years later, is very different, have the complexities that are embodied, in a way, in this work of art, have they impacted on your own art making, given your own exploration of landscape within Australian history? It was perhaps more about the process of thinking and awareness on her part that gave rise to those works and which influenced me. When I began to understand more of the complexity of Preston's work and some of the issues surrounding the way that she was painting and talking about an Aboriginal landscape, for instance, or an Aboriginal still life, it actually helped me understand how to begin moving my own sense of evaluation and analysis into areas where I had an appreciation then perhaps of cultural boundaries and what it was about that process of creating and making that artists now almost need to have in mind. It adds an extra layer of consideration and complexity, but those layers are things which make a work richer. The final work that you've chosen is also an exploration of landscape and history, but it's on the other side of the world, in Germany. And the work is Abendland, or Twilight of the West, by the German artist Anselm Kiefer, who was born in 1945, obviously a very significant date for Germany. Created in 1989, and it's an enormous work. It's almost four by four metres, and it weighs over 300 kilos. It was created from a mix of synthetic polymer paint, lead, ash, plaster, cement, earth and varnish on canvas and wood. Danny, when did you first come across this artwork and what was it about it that 
held your attention? Again, student days. And it was one of the first works that I stopped in front of. And it held me spellbound. If there was ever a moment where you could sort of quote Burke and the sublime, that was it. It was, it was almost like a, a moment where speech and thinking had no place. It was a moment for a, a young artist, as I was then, of sort of profound silence and realisation that art could convey incredibly powerful, significant messages without the need for verbal communication. So this, in a sense, was a work for me by Kiefer that summarised, in a lot of ways, the, the work of his career. There are different layers of history in that as a sense of the sublime and spirituality But there's also a a strong sense, too, of a story being shown or or revealed or perhaps even concealed by that drape, by that curtain of lead that almost shuts us off from two-thirds of the painting. So it struck me as being this, ironically, a veil of some sort and a veil that was almost placed in front of our eyes over a scene Uh, railroad tracks that we connect now um, with the Holocaust and with that horrific event and chapter in recent history. I find it very interesting that Kiefer, as an artist, was quite prepared to explore that particular element of German history, which was very recent for him and very recent for Germany when his work was shown at the Venice Biennale. And, you know, he was accused of supporting that particular form of of Nazism and because of the work that he was doing, it was very controversial and very raw at the time. And so Kiefer's work brings together a lot of historical complications, but he does it in such a way that it's sort of foregrounded by a really fascinating history as well of German Romanticism, where he's talking not simply about a visible world, but the experience of the artist, of the world around him, and how then to convey the intangible as a material thing. You mentioned politics and political readings of this work, but, you know, this is a work that is dealing with a sort of mix of abstraction and figuration. We can see the train tracks and we can literally feel, see the weight of this image. What is your reading of the politics inherent in this picture? Or is it even right to ask about politics in a picture? In some ways, reading those political layers in an artwork can often preempt the artist's intent or their position. I tend to see the artist's job as exploring and making work about those difficult chapters that humanity has found itself passing through or experiencing. And quite often, it is with a retrospective look back at that time. For Kiefer, it was very recent. Without sort of understanding his own personal reasons or his own personal politics, it becomes an important, almost like a message that conveys, actually, these are some things that are worth thinking, considering and remembering. And works such as this do it. You make the very interesting observation 
Jennifer of the weight of the painting. I would also say that has a symbolic weight. It's that symbolic weight of history and, you know, the heaviness and the, the sadness and the poignancy. And would you say that that continues to make this painting very relevant to, say, contemporary politics and contemporary history? Yes. And this is a really interesting thing about paintings or works of art that have a particular significance, you know, in the discussion or making at a particular point of time, while the form has a very significant and specific temporal relevance, because they have power and quality and deal often with timeless issues, they are, in a sense, the, the things that they're dealing with are transportable. So it tends to be that these things repeat in human history and so they are always relevant. In what way do these very disparate works by John Marwangel, Cindy Nolan, Margaret Preston and Anselm Kiefer resonate with your own artistic practice? They take a closer look at the world and they all, as artists, uh, there's an archaeology about the way they're looking, about the way they're thinking and retelling. So all the work of these artists occupies a, a particular space, I felt, both culturally, but also in their emotional and intellectual investigation. And for me, that was what made these works significant and have a certain resonance and power that I hope is, is seen and felt by audiences as well. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Jennifer. That was great. I'm Jennifer Hickey, and this has been Artists, Artists, brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. Information about the works of art discussed in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app or listen at nga.gov.au. This is a people-powered podcast made possible through donations to the National Gallery. Your support helps us elevate art, artists and the National Collection. Make a donation today.